Those of you who uh, wish tape, make sure that you make your arrangements with Bill O'Neill. Uh, you can buy them for the entire weekend program, or I believe uh, separately. But catch Bill over here at the to our right, to my right, and well, they finally let anybody in. They always told me there wasn't too much good in Mississippi, but whatever good was, I was left it. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I'm glad I'm sober, too. You know, I got a telephone call the Thursday night uh, our international convention took place from Miami. The call came in about midnight, and it was a friend of long standing in the program, and as soon as he identified himself, I said, Russell, what in hell are you calling at this hour for? And he said, well, I wanted to let you know that they took Bill to the hospital. Now, my first reaction was, well, naturally, they're calling me to come down and take his place on the program. <laughs> and I said, Russell, what time do you want me down there? And he said, oh, hell, we don't want you. I just wanted to tell you. And uh, I got a call this morning wanting to know uh, if I was available. <laughs> Man, that's like asking a drinking drunk if he wants another drink, you know. Uh, but... You see, this was not just without reason. When you have uh, such an authority speaking as a judge, you need someone with some experience to introduce them. And uh, experience with judges is something I've had. You know, it'd be awful easy to use all the usual stories about judges. I remember the first story I heard about them a long time ago, about the time I first met our speaker out in California about the judge going up, or the drunk going up before the judge, and the judge giving him 90 days, and he said, I can't do 90, and the judge told him to do all he could. Uh, and there are a lot of that are worse than that, you see, but I, I'm not going to tell you those. I was very fortunate uh, I believe it was 1956 or maybe 57 that I first heard uh, the judge. And I had just gotten out of jail, which wasn't a new experience, but I was trying desperately to get back into the program. And perhaps if I had listened to some of the things that uh, he had spoken about then, I may not be here today. Uh, but I didn't listen, and I had to go back and try some of these experiences that he's going to tell us about. A very, uh, I like to throw this in, it has nothing to do with the program, but it, it makes me feel good. The attorney I had, Judge uh, Henry Shepard, was not a judge then, threw his hands up in disgust shortly thereafter and said, there's nothing I can do for people like you. He said, hell, I don't even understand anything about you. But he said, but if I ever get in a position where I could do something to help you or people like you, I'm certainly going to do it. And Henry became a judge, and uh, about three years ago, he got national attention for the fact that he would not commit a judge to jail. I mean, a drunk to jail. <laughs> yeah. Well, a matter of fact, I've been in jail with a drunk judge, too. So. But uh, and this is the way the program works. See, we alcoholics and people with our personality... Uh, become paradoxes. And people who are not 
closely uh, aligned with us during our drinking and this recovery just don't understand what's happened. And when we get another person in a position that can do something and does understand, then we're extremely fortunate. And I think you're going to be warmly delighted with our speaker this morning. Uh, I would never grow tired of hearing him. And I'm going to be in a very envious position today, uh, not only in uh, introducing you to our speaker, but when he gets through for the first time in my life, I'm going to have the last word uh, with a judge. And so it is with a great deal of privilege that I bring you Judge Ray Harrison from Des Moines, Iowa. I like the dignity that you have here. <laughs> For the next 43 minutes, I'm not a very fancy speaker, not a very <laughs> fancy drunk. I reminded when he mentioned jail, uh, I'm perhaps the only judge in the world that's been 18 times in his own jail for being drunk. <laughs> After I was a year dry, I decided to write a paper that had startled a medical fraternity. Here I was, the champion lush in my town, and hadn't had a drink for a year. So I called a police captain, a friend of mine. I said, I wish you'd give me the exact dates that one of your repeating drunks comes in there. He said, all right, I'll give you yours. <laughs> and then I looked over those 18 dates, and I noticed that I wasn't in jail on any time when a drunk should be in jail, like Fourth of July or New Year's Eve, wife's birthday, none of those times. So I called the library to see what the hell I was celebrating. I found I got drunk on Wild Bird Life Day. I got drunk on the day the English changed over to the Gregorian calendar. I got drunk on Polk's birthday, but he was a Democrat, and I sure as hell wasn't celebrating that. But that was the same date that Harding was born. Well, it's a good thing we can laugh about it. Back to me, I not very fancy. I I'm old. I'm fat. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Republican. An alcoholic. And I got nineteen payments yet due on an Edsel. These meetings, uh, of course, have to run on time, and I'm always reminded of the story that shows the cunning of the alcoholic, how he plans things ahead. I always did that. And this is about a fellow who was having some trouble with his lovemaking. So he went to the family doctor, and he told him, I'm having trouble with my girl with some lovemaking, and you've got an extra room here, 
We'd like to come and use the room. You put your head in every two or three minutes and see if we're doing anything that's wrong and then let us know. Doc says, all right. He was in there an hour and the doctor stuck his head in. After he came out, the doctor said, I don't see anything wrong that you're doing at all. Would you like to come? Oh, yeah, the drunk said we'd like to use the room tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock if we could. Doc says, all right. They were back in the morning at 9 o'clock. The doctor stuck his head in three or four times. After they come out, the doctor said, I don't see anything wrong that you're doing. Basically, what's your trouble? Well, the drunk says, if we get to make love at my house, my wife objects. If we make love at her house, her husband objects. If we get a motel, that costs $15. Here we can come for an office call for $4, and Blue Cross pays half of that. Another time story. I, we always have no rules in AA, you know, and, but I find we're not exclusive in that. The local Rotary Club here at Hot Springs had a bylaw called 65 that a man couldn't speak longer than 15 minutes. And then they asked a fellow to tell about his trip around the world. Well, he said, hell, I can't do it in 50. That's all the time he got. Bylaw 65. Tell the highlights. Well, the fellow said, all right, the highlights were... I was seated at the sidewalk cafe in Paris, and he said, gentlemen, a beautiful doll came along, and she was really lusted. He said, I've been to New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and Hot Springs. I've never seen any dolls like this one. We had a few martinis, and she said, would you like to go to my apartment? I said, okay. She took me up to this beautifully draped and lavishly furnished apartment. The gentleman of entered New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Hot Springs. Never saw any apartment like that. After we got in the apartment, she turned the lights down low and said, Do you mind if I change to something more comfortable? He said, No. She went in her boudoir and in a few minutes came out in a beautiful red negligee. And as her body stood encased in that walnut case door, he said, Gentlemen, I've been to New York, Chicago, San Francisco. Just then, the chairman said, time's up. <laughs> One of the Rotarians say, I move we do well with bylaw 65. <laughs> Forty-five guys seconded the motion. It carried unanimously. He turned to the speaker and said, go ahead. Well, the speaker said, gentlemen, I, I kind of wish you hadn't gone to all that trouble. Because from there on out, everything was exactly the same as it is in New York, Chicago. <laughs> Currently in Congress, they're having quite a to-do about liquor advertisements. And whether they contribute to the making of alcoholics, I don't think they do. At least I, I never read anything when I was drinking. Picture books, all. But now looking at liquor advertisements through the eyes of an alcoholic, they, they take on a, a very different meaning. I don't expect all of you to see these, but here's the Paps Blue Ribbon ad that shows a beautiful doll lying down on the grass, drinking beer, and the dope standing here drinking beer with one hand and painting with the other. That's what we call control drinking. (laughs) 
the White Horse Scotch ad so shows a man riding in the parlor on the end of the horse that's quite familiar to me. <laughs> Mommy used to complain about me bringing home people for breakfast at 4 o'clock in the morning. I never brought a horse home like that. In the Canadian Club ad, it shows a policeman surrounded by a lot of different brands of whiskey. And the ad says, why did all of these whiskeys, 65 of them, try to imitate Canadian Club? And I counted the bottles, and there's only 62. <laughs> Which means that the coppers heisted three of the courts. <laughs> In the Smirnoff vodka ad, it shows a man with a papier-mâché bull's head on him, seated at the table drinking what appears to be vodka. I've got to be awful careful when I read this. It reads... Bullshot. The vodka drink with beef in it. You can't miss with a bullshot. Simply pour good beef bouillon over ice, add a shot of Smirnoff vodka, and garnish with a twist of lemon. I bet that lemon does a hell of a lot for it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you laughed. I think it's part of our recovery program. And please bear in mind that anything I say only pertains to my recovery. I don't claim to know all the answers. If I say anything that might affect any other group, it's only as it affects my group. And if anybody disagrees with me, you remember, they have a constitutional right to be wrong. <laughs> I think sometimes we're to blame in AA that we don't let our neighbor know that we're happy being sober. And I've been to some AA meetings that I'm sure I'd have walked out of and got drunk if it had been my first one. We make a sordid federal case about it. I've observed that the men who are with long runs in AA are happy, humble guys, without any exception. And I'll tell you more about humility in a little while. But this drinking's been going on for a long time, and it'll go on for a long time yet. I have the log of the USS Constitution that set sail from Boston September or August 23rd, 1779. She left with 475 officers and 48,600 gallons of fresh water, 7,400 cannon shot. 11,000 pounds of black powder, 79,000 gallons of rum. <laughs> Permission was granted to harass and destroy English shipping. Making Jamaica on October the 6th, she took on 895 pounds of flour and 68,300 gallons of rum. Then she headed for the Azores. Arriving there on November 12th, she provisioned with 550 pounds of beef, and 54,300 gallons of Portuguese wine. On November 18th, she set sail for England. In the ensuing days, she defeated five British men of war and captured and scuttled 12 English merchantmen salvaging only the rum. By January, her powder and shot were exhausted and unarmed. She made a night raid up to the Firth of Clyde. Her landing party captured the whiskey distillery and transferred 40,000 gallons aboard by dawn. Then she headed for home. The USS Constitution arrived in Boston in February 1780 with no cannon shot, no food, no powder, no rum, 
No whiskey, no wine, and 48,600 gallons of water. Stagnant. <laughs> we, uh, I went to a meeting in Canada. I hope I don't offend anybody by this. To illustrate what I say, that we, we can plan our meetings better. There were about 25 guys there, and we seated in the room. It was in a bishop's house, and the daughter was the alcoholic. So, and now you've seen this happen at your group. A guy called a meeting daughter. We're all sitting on folding chairs. He said, I didn't bring the right glasses tonight, or I read the Twelve Traditions, and I, or I'd read the Twelve Steps, too, in Chapter 5. I didn't know I was going to be chairman until five minutes ago. So he said, I guess we'll go around the room, and tonight the topic will be, what can I do to best help AA? He says, Pete, what do you say? Pete says, you know I never speak at meetings. My wife does all the talking at my house. All right, Henry, what do you say? Henry says, I've never spoken at a meeting in my life. I'm not going to start now. Peter, John, what do you say? John said, well, I haven't given it any thought, but I think it'd be nice if after the meeting is over, we'd pull up the folding chairs. <laughs> Louis, what do you say? Louis said, I agree with John. After the meeting's over, let's fold up the folding chairs. Henry, what do you say? I agree with them. Let's fold up the folding chairs. And so help me God, we went around the room and everybody folded up the folding chairs. And I told them when it came to me, I hoped there was no new drunks there that night because they might readily get from that meeting that all you had to do was fold up a few folding chairs and you'd be sober. And you and I know that that isn't true. We have a, we have a lot of different ways of talking about serenity. Dr. Murray Banks, who was a noted psychiatrist, I was with him last month in Phoenix, wrote an article in McCall's magazine recently about how, how to bring about happiness. We call it serenity. He has what he calls the six pills to happiness. Listen to how closely they are aligned to our 12 steps. The first pill, says Banks, is stop lying to yourself. The second pill, give your old age a kick. The third pill, murder your worries. The fourth pill, live your life one day at a time. The fifth pill, form a picture in your mind of what you'd like to be and be it. And the sixth pill and the most important, said Dr. Banks, is bless yourself with a light touch. Now, he says, I've saved this for the last because without it, all is lost. And with it, nothing is ever lost. If you have it, you're richer than emperor or king. If you lack it, no amount of money can ever make you happy. Inflation cannot wipe it out. There's no tax on it. No thief can rob you of it. There's no place in the world you can buy it. It's life's cheapest luxury, laughter. He says, I know of nothing that will make you more beautiful, says Dr. Banks. Better help you face and solve your problems and keep you rubbing shoulders with happiness than laughter. He says, 
It's a priceless elixir that tones up the skin and freshens the soul. It has a cosmetic effect on the entire body, says Banks. Then he says, beware lest the wrinkles of the heart extend to the face. And I thank God every day that I have the opportunity to face from 15 to 50 men and women in the drunk lineup where the wrinkles of the heart have extended to the face. I'll show you some pictures before I'm through. We have fellas in the lineup, 36 years old, that's been arrested 300 times for drunk. And you'll notice the wrinkles in his face. He's now sober. We have some arrested 500 times for drunk. Men that are 35 years old that look like 70. So, I mean, I do think that the ability to laugh at yourself is a great characteristic that we all might well emulate. Now, I've used a lot of tricks to myself to stay sober, besides never missing an AA meeting in nearly 28 years. Never. And I now go to four a week. To some of you who are intermittent. <laughs> I'm 68 years old. I put off with my dentist an appointment Monday morning. He's taking out all my baby teeth. I go to four meetings a week, perhaps could get by with one. But I got, you get nothing for nothing but nothing. And my idea of compensation is that there's something you've got to pay back. Not necessarily to the person who gave it to you, but you've got to do something for somebody else to get even for the score that's been given to you. And please forgive me if you don't agree with that. I know that you wives who are here are the unsung heroes in AA. Al-Anon. My wife, Mama, I wouldn't be sober ten minutes without her. She knows how to wriggle me into the corner when I get thinking bad. And thank God she stuck with me through my drinking. And maybe now I can get even with her before I die. And I'm trying. I, I take her to Hawaii for the last seven years on our vacation. For her hanging on when everybody else gave up. God knows what these women take. They know more about alcoholism than any of us. They can anticipate when we're going to get drunk three days ahead of the time we get drunk. My wife could tell on the telephone if I was a thousand miles away how many drinks I had. It used to make me so damn mad. <laughs> if I miss a meeting because I'm speaking someplace, Mama goes. Our al group meets every month. She wouldn't miss it. So I'd like to pay tribute to these wives who have been such a great help to us staying sober. Now, I notice there are some of you who aren't alcoholics that are here. 
I can tell by the looks of your gossipy faces. You're wondering how wonder how much she drank. Well, the ones with the happy, contented, smiling faces, they're the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. <coughs> I've used a lot of tricks, gimmicks, to stay sober. Before I before I quit drinking, everybody used to get a hobby. So I took up hook rugs. And I got the damn thing that big in my basement yet. Where you do something with a thread that goes through the rug. Of course, I was going to paint a picture of my dog on the rug. And I can't paint either. So the thing's down there about that much of it done. But hobby, <laughs> hobbies never did it for me. I uh, took up golf. I'd play three games, three holes on Saturday, and then run up to the clubhouse and get drunk. Tried the hospital, no good. Jail, no good. Just kept getting drunker. Till along come my sponsor, thank God, from Omaha, Don Farrell. He don't care if I use his name. He came into my little law office, and he said, we haven't got any AA in Iowa. You're an alcoholic. I don't know whether you know it or not. <laughs> You're the guy that started here. Well, I said, don't rush me into this thing now. I didn't want to get in no organization with the name alcohol in it. Me, who'd been thrown out of the South Bend Stadium at the Southern California Notre Dame game in front of 60,000 people, drunk, from the field... I didn't want nobody to know that I quit drinking. <laughs> Might hurt my business. <laughs> so he left me the big AA book, and for God's sake, if there's any man here who hasn't read it, borrow one or buy one or even steal one and read it. If there's any doubt in your mind whether you're an alcoholic, and you are, then the book will settle that doubt. So I took the book home, and Mama was always grateful if I'd just be home, you know, not drunk. This was one of those Saturday nights that we had lots of. We had no friends. We were never invited anyplace. Even my fraternity, when they'd have a little dinner dance, they wouldn't invite me because they'd have a few drinks, and they knew if I was there, I'd get drunk. And I would so this night, Mama must have sensed that some, something had happened to me because I said I want to read. I tore the yellow paper covering off the book. I didn't want her to know what I was reading. And I started reading the big AA book, the old one. Finished at 4 o'clock in the morning, Sunday. Well, even me with my mixed-up thinking knew that that was no time to call my sponsor back in Omaha. So I waited till 6. And I called him and said, come on back. So he got there the next day, said, when do we have the first meeting? I said, we got to get some more drunks. And that's the first time I ever called me a drunk. So he got on the phone, I got on the phone, and the next day we had five little old drunks in my little law office for the first meeting in AA in Iowa. Now, any time a guy says to me the meeting was kind of a bore this morning or tonight, 
I wish he'd have been to that first meeting with me. I, I was the only one there that read the book. Nobody, none of us knew anything about it. One of the fellows that was drunk at the meeting made a talk that we all applauded very heartily. And the text of the talk was, What a son of a bitch his mother-in-law was. We were all the same fix. <laughs> well, he got on the phone, I got on the phone, the next day we had five. I was afraid nobody come to the next meeting, so I said, if you'll come to the next meeting, we'll have dinner, it'll be free, we'll have it at my house, and get some more drunks. Next meeting, all five came, brought three more. And the only reason I'm telling you this is to illustrate how lazy we're getting. Next meeting we set up, all eight came, brought five more. Five new ones. Now we're 13. Next meeting we set up, all 13 came, brought 10 more. How long has it been since your group had 10 new people to the meeting? Are we getting apathetic? Are we satisfied to take from AA and not give? I know I am. It's a natural thing. I like being sober, and I think, oh... Let the younger fellas make the tough calls. If they get a big psychiatric question, they can call me. You know, we get thinking of. Well, we're now 23. Everybody's sober. The stars are beginning to shine in the eyes of those that love us, our wives. Then it happened. One got drunk. He had a little extra curricular romantic business going on the side that his wife didn't know about. He got drunk. Two o'clock in the morning, we had him in the hotel. All 23 of us were there. <laughs> Big event. We had a meeting around the body. <laughs> One of our members had reached that medical stage where he carried paraldehyde with him. I never heard of paraldehyde. I said, what does it do? He said, you give him a little bit and he takes a sleep. So they gave my friend on the floor a drink and he went over like that. I thought we'd all be indicted the next day for murder. <laughs> so we had a meeting right there with Halsey lying on the floor. We decided there'd be no more adultery. voted for that. <laughs> especially, especially that meant with other AAs. <laughs> We've now uh, increased the adultery rule out of the uh, boundaries of the state of Iowa. <laughs> well, then we decided we had another problem. Were we going to tell our loved ones that one of us had failed? And it was a big decision to make. But we decided that if we are going to be honest, we'd tell our mamas. So we did. And then, God bless them, they never argued like that before. They said, well, you can't expect perfection. 
in this thing. The other 22 of you are sober. Go on back and get Halsey sober that had fallen and be thankful it wasn't you. And we did. So the women have played a great part in our sobriety in Des Moines, Idaho. And for that, I shall be eternally grateful. You know, it's, it's quite consoling to an alcoholic bum like I was to have somebody get on your side. And in my case, it was Mama. I'd be in a town of Davenport. It's always been a bad town for me. Oh, I'd lost overcoats and watches. I was only in AA three months. I tried a case, which, by the way, involved a load of whiskey from Illinois. The first case tried in Iowa. And I'd had a hell of a time in Davenport every time I tried a case there. After this case was over, Mama heard it on the radio that my man was found not guilty. She called me, and I knew, like she always called before. She usually said, now you get on the 4 o'clock plane. I'll meet you at the airport, or get on the train at 5.30. This time was different. I remember I'm three months sober. She said, you've been working hard, Ray. Why don't, why don't you stay an extra day in Davenport, get some rest, see some of your friends? I knew then. I knew then she was in my corner. I wouldn't have taken a drink for all the tea in China then. I had somebody batting for me. And it's quite important that we let the new man whom we're talking to believe that we think he can stay sober. And let me pass on to you this in ace. I suppose I've talked to more new men. I've had nearly 80,000 through my court in the court class. And the one thing they all remember that I say to them at the first meeting is, I'll give three to one that you're going to stay sober. Now, that's an appealing thing to a fellow who heretofore nobody gave a damn whether he stayed sober or not. Now he's got somebody, and in our case, the court, who cares? Who does give a damn if he stays sober? You might, in your 12-step call, pass it on and try it. You'll find... Fifteen years from now, you'll meet a guy and he'll say, I'll remember the first thing you said to me. You'd give three to one that I wouldn't drink again. Might try it if you'd like. Now, back to the mechanical things that I use to stay sober. I looked about me and I saw Badger at Texas and Chuck on the coast and McLaughlin in Chicago and Bill and Bob across Straub in Denver. Uh... All who had long runs in AA. And I, I noticed that all of these fellows had a characteristic quality in addition to being alcoholic. And that was, they were very humble guys. None of them took any credit for their sobriety. They got the same body and the same brain they had when they were drinking would prefer to give credit to God as they understood it. And I was having a lot of good things happen to me. Too many good things, I thought. I might get to thinking I was a great guy and take that great guy in and buy him a drink. So I decided I needed something to make me stay humble. And I knew it had to be an auditory sound. And I decided that every time I heard a bell ring, 
and we'll hear one before we leave this meeting. To me, it would mean, thanks to you, God, for letting me be sober. Now, you'd be surprised how many bells you hear in a day's time. You'll hear a buzzer. It'll confuse you, but you'll go ahead and thank God for being sober. If your house is like my house, the first thing that happens in the morning is a bell ring, either the alarm clock or the phone. And you can't have any gray skies anymore if you start your day out thanking God for your sobriety. You know, a lot of writers think that your whole day is governed by your thoughts the first hour in the morning. And I believe that to be true. And so, I hear the bells every 15 minutes in my courthouse. And nobody knows but the AAs in my town what that means to me. And I find that it has another good quality about it, the bells. There may be some male alcoholics in the room have who have never had any bad thoughts. If, if there are, they can meet in the phone booth. That <laughs> You'll be just getting ready to hate somebody or jealous of someone and a bell will ring. And immediately, you start thinking where you ought to start thinking. I just pass it on to you. You know, we have the great gift in Alcoholics Anonymous of being philanthropists without money. We give something greater than money when we call on a guy to help him. You know, a lot of writers have said it a different way. A man never stands so erect as when he stoops to help his fellow man. Another writer said, you can't climb up the hill helping another without getting a little closer to the top yourself. Another writer said, you can't hand someone a rose without retaining some of the fragrance on your fingers. So just think what the good Lord has given us. The ability to, if you please, be doctors for this disease of ours. First on ourselves and then on our drunken pals, who everybody else has failed us. When I went to the bench some 15 years ago, I asked the other members of my court if I could do a little research on what's going on with the drunks in my town. They said, of course, we're not doing very well. So I found that we'd arrested men 500, 300, 400 times for drunk, and they'd be back. Then we found further that most of these fellows in the drunk lineup had at one time or another been to AA, the organization that I love so much. But we shunned them. And because they were dirty and they hadn't bathed for three weeks and they were broke, they'd find no denominator at any of my meetings. We have a dinner group in Des Moines that's been going for 15 years where we all have dinner with our wives every Thursday night. Now, a poor bum comes to that meeting. He's lost. He, he says, they're not like me. They never drank like I did. So we decided that we'd bring AA to the courtroom. So 15 years ago, we started what's called the Honor Court Class. Not called AA. 
because they wouldn't come. They're mad at AA, all of them. And sometimes, rightfully so. We've been guilty. Well, we let them come to the court class drunk. Our average attendance at the court class is 100 every Wednesday night. Of the worst drunks in my town, no worse than I was, but they're the worst offenders. The court delays the sentence when they plead guilty to drunk and says, in the meantime, you go to the court class. If you don't go, it'll make a difference in your penalty. Now, there'll be some cardinals in the room <laughs> who say you can't force a man to quit drinking. That's a lot of crap. I was forced to quit drinking. I could either go ahead and drink and die or quit. And I know many who were forced by doctors and the courts and, and a wife who understood to quit drinking. So we found out and, that we were wrong. That coercion is sometimes a good motivation. And if you don't believe that, you come to Des Moines and I'll show you some guys that were coerced to go to AA. And I'll go to Los Angeles with you and show you some guys who were forced to go to AA by the, my friend the judge there and are now 10 years sober. So there is a way to do it. <coughs> At the court class, it's really not the junior league. We do serve milk. Uh, we we uh, don't let anyone take the name of the Lord in vain, but they do say some things that attack your heredity. <laughs> and they direct them to me to transform to get off their chest anything they have against the court or the police department. And you know, the funny thing about it, it don't make much difference what happens at the meeting. The fact that they went is good therapy. Because with every step that they climb to get to the second floor of our court, they may well say aloud, I can stay sober with the help of this gang, and without them I can't. So really it doesn't make much difference what happens after the meeting has started. Now we've had some funny things happen at the court class. One lady called me one day and she said, oh, John's been drinking terrible all afternoon. He's had 15 quarts of beer. Well, I said, if he's breathing, bring him. <laughs> so he was there, and of course, he's pretty drunk. So we put the focus of the meeting on him. How is John going to get home tonight without taking any more beer? One of the boys spoke up and said, I know how. After the meeting tonight, make John go out and drink a quart of milk. And this John, who was so damn drunk, stood up and said, a whole quart? <laughs> Now, we do say some things at the court class that we couldn't do at an AA meeting. And we do this with the permission of the members of the class. If we could have the lights in the room dimmed. We take, we have their last mug picture taken by the police against their will when they're arrested. And then after their dry year with the court class, they may, if they want to, go down and have another picture taken by the same camera that took the first one. 
and generally the same policeman. We brought 15 of those pictures along before and after. May we have the first one? Damn thing went democratic. <laughs> All right, now. <laughs> Here's a girl. She looks tough there, but she's not. She's a sweet kid. She's got a turtleneck sweater there. Rested 135 times. Here she is a year later, sober. Thank God she changed. There she is. Now let's have the next one. Here's Skippy. Since he got sober, he became American citizen, got his own company, got married, got a new car, just finished a California vacation, and here he is a year later. And the next one. Here's <laughs> this fella couldn't wait for the year. He'd been arrested three hundred times. So he's six months sober and he asked us if he could not have his picture taken. We told him yes. Here he is six months later. And the next one. Here's the fellow I was talking about, thirty six years old. Three hundred arrests. You can see between his eyes the wrinkle. That speaks out loudly that he's in complete despair. Watch this. And the next one. Here's Casey, a graduate engineer. 500 arrests for being drunk. Came to court class 15 years ago. Hasn't had a drink since. Works for the state of Iowa in the Highway Commission as a draftsman. Here he is a year later. And the next one. Here's a... You always feel kind of safe when you're on a streetcar or bus. This guy drove the bus. He'd been to penitentiary three times for drunken driving. Here he is a year later, sober. And the next one. Here's a fellow that don't look like a leader of any kind, but he's led the entire nation in the sale of insurance for his company. Here he is a year later. And the next one. Here's a fellow that spoke out of turn. He's a real good guy, a barber. He stayed at my house as long as six months at a time, staying sober. Here he is a year later. And the next one. Here's a girl we sent to penitentiary for being an habitual drunk. And the state of Iowa has hung its head in shame ever since. Here she is a year later. And the next one. Here's a fellow union organizer in my town. Looks like a tough guy, but he's not. Real nice guy. Here he is a year later.
on the next one. Here's Jerry, 300 arrests. He's dead now. His family came to us after his death and said our picture was the only sober one they ever had of him, and would we please give him some? So our police, police department finished up a dozen of these. And the next one. This fellow went to penitentiary three times for drunken driving, which means he was arrested at least six. When he came out, he went to the court class and was tough enough and rough enough that he liked it. Here he is a year later. Here's a girl that was engaged in a business that wasn't millinery. <laughs> we got her job taking care of a spastic lady, paid her $15 a week. She saved money on it, built a house out of an old streetcar on city property. I saw that she got that. And she had Mom and I down to eat. And I didn't say where the city property was. It was adjoining the dump. But she had it immaculately clean. Here she is a year later. And the next one. Here's a real woodworker that must have been out with his mother-in-law that night. Here he is a year later. And the next one. Now I want you to watch this one carefully. Here's a fellow that presently is making $25,000 a year. He'd only been 75 times in our jail. The police didn't want us to take him to the court class. Afraid it hurt our record. He's now 18 years sober, and here he was when he was a year sober. Thank you very much for helping me with the slides. <laughs> Mom always used to say to me, if I had a picture of you, you'd never drink again. <laughs> I'm not so sure of that. Well, if we ever get so smug as to think we're a great guy, it's because we quit drinking, and God forbid that that ever happens to any of us. We need then look to the life of another alcoholic, Stephen Collins Foster, and cherish the possession that Almighty God has given us. You know, Foster died at the age of 37 in 1864 of mortal wounds that he'd received in a Bowery basement in the slums of New York. And his body lay unclaimed, unrecognized in the morgue, while the streets of New York literally hummed the tunes he had given them and sold to Christie's Minstrels for $5 apiece, which to Foster meant eight quarts of whiskey at that time. At the time of his death, no material possessions on his person except a tiny child's pocketbook, inside of which was a torn strip of paper, and written thereon perhaps the words of another song. <laughs> 
the gold of friendship. And that's what we've got in Alcoholics Anonymous. Guys that measure you not by the size of your purse, but the size of your heart. And I like to think of Foster as kind of our patron saint, because I can see in the words of his song the great love he had for beauty, the love he had for his home, and yes, even the tears of his wife. You know, the words go, the sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. Tis summer, the darkies are gay. The corn stalks ripe and the meadows are in bloom and the birds make music all the day. Weep no more, my lady. Oh, weep no more today. We shall sing one song of my old Kentucky home, my old Kentucky home far away. Foster didn't have the same chance that I had. What a great A.A. Stephen Foster would have been. His heritage to mankind were the melodies that he stored like jewels in the hearts of millions of God's children, jewels of which they couldn't be robbed, and jewels that they carried with them in their travelings all over the world. In the Palace of American Genius, there have been many knights and nobles, but the Prince of the Purple Chamber lay dead when Stephen C. Foster gently laid his weary head in the gentle arms of his maker and joined the old folks at home who had gone before. We of the municipal court of the city of Des Moines intend to see that the Stephen Fosters that appear in front of us in our drunk lineup get the chance to get well if they will but try. Thank you very much. And it appears like we need some more judges like that one. I've got uh, one important announcement. Is there anyone after this meeting that will be leaving and heading back through Little Rock? Well, I just got so good you can't stand to break away. All right. Uh, I want to do something that is not normal and if I'm at fault for doing it. You can raise hell with me later, but where's old Dick? Dick, where are you at? Stand up a second, will you, Dick? I think one guy, I think one guy put up his hand. Dick came to this program awful late in life. And this morning he woke up for the 8,000 great day without the necessity of having a drink. I think that's fun. And it's also tough to go to a convention and not see Dick there ahead of you. Alcoholics Anonymous is many things to many people, but basically you and I in our talks and meetings with the public and in our families proclaim it spiritual. And I want to ask you this morning, and 
standing and closing with the Lord's Prayer to hold the hand of the person next to you. And as you get ready to repeat the Lord's Prayer, say to yourself that you really believe. And then you can do, as the judge said, uh, walk out of here with laughter in your heart and a smile on your face. Would you stand and join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Judge, judge.